Uh, our series that we're involved in now, this is week five, is Time is of the Essence, as Jesus points his face toward Jerusalem for the last time, and everything he says, everything he does is of the utmost importance. Not that it wasn't before, but I think it's redoubled now as he knows what uh, the end is in sight for him right now. We are working through Matthew chapter 16, the end of that, and going into chapter 17 this week. So I'd like to ask you to open your uh, Bibles if you have them with you. You can follow along in, in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have some up here at the front. You're welcome to take one of these. If you don't have a Bible that's easy to read, um, have one of these. That can be your, your gift from Renovation Church. But all the scriptures should be on the screen today as well. In this church, we believe that the Bible is the infallible Word of God. It's the only rule that we have, the only standard that we have for um, our life. Any, any portion of our life, um, we look to the Bible as the answer for all of the problems in our lives. I'll begin reading um, Matthew chapter 16, verse 28. I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom and into chapter 17. After six days, Jesus took with Him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them to a high mountain by themselves. There He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for your word. Uh, never changing, ever true. The sources we say of of all the answers to the problems in our lives if we would just read and obey. Give us the opportunity today as we come together for corporate worship to um, put all the distractions from last week behind us, all the anxieties of this week completely out of our minds so that we can focus totally on you as the object of our worship. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord 
our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. You know, in the Bible, many important things happen on mountains, it seems. The most dramatic example, I guess, has to be that account of uh, the appearance of God on Mount Sinai in the burning bush to Moses. And then later to the, to the nation of Israel as he gave the law to them on the same mountain. On Mount Carmel, God uh, answered Elijah's prayer by sending fire to consume the, the sacrifice and even the entire altar, defeating the claims of the false prophets of Baal. And after that, God appeared to Elijah on Mount Sinai, just as he had to Moses sometime earlier. And we think of Satan's temptation of Jesus on a mountain when he took him to what it says in Scripture was a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, saying from Matthew 4, 9, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus countered him, of course, with Scripture. And now we have another important mountain here. This is called the Mount of Transfiguration. Undoubtedly, this was a mountaintop experience for the disciples that had received the engraved invitation to go with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration. There were three of these disciples, you know, Peter, James, and John. James and John were, were brothers. They were fishermen, uh, sons of Zebedee at the uh, Sea of Galilee. And Peter was so impressed by what he had seen that he wrote about it years later. He said in, sec- in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with Him on that sacred mountain. I think there's times in all of our lives, if we're honest, when we wish, we just wish we could have a mountaintop experience. And some of you may have experienced that from time to time at, at a conference or at a camp or at a uh, some... Uh, many of you have been to uh, Israel with us, and man alive, that's a, that's a mountaintop experience day after day after day. We all wish that we had had that just like these disciples. And there's a lot about this story that we just read that we don't know. It's, it's really kind of interesting. For instance, we don't know what mountain it took place on. We don't know where the Mount of Transfiguration is. It says in Scripture it was a high mountain. That's in verse 1. And it's been traditionally identified as Mount Tabor, which lies to the south of the Sea of Galilee. And I think I have a uh, a map here that shows that. There at Caesarea Philippi, last week in the studies that we did, uh, Mount Tabor is down to the south of the Sea of Galilee there. Has an elevation of 1,900 feet. It looks like, looks like a cereal bowl that's been turned upside down. It's very easy to spot as you ride through the, the country of Israel. It stands out because of the round top on it. Mount Tabor seems to be located in the wrong place, though. 
because it's too far from where they were in the northern part of Israel up at Caesarea Philippi just six days earlier. Caesarea Philippi is at 1,150 feet thereabouts. The next location that's mentioned is Capernaum, and we've, we've done a lot of work around Capernaum in here as we've talked about Jesus' ministry, and it's 600 feet below sea level. And then if you keep going south to this Mount Tabor, uh, it's uh, 11, uh, 1,900 feet, 1,900 feet above sea level. So they're doing this if it's Mount Tabor that they're going to. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, besides, archaeologists have discovered recently that there was a fortress on top of Mount Tabor, and that makes it unlikely that Jesus would have taken his disciples there for such an intimate, private, prayerful sort of meeting with the glory of God. Other people have focused in on Mount Hermon as the site, and I think in the map here you can see Mount Hermon way up to the north. It actually extends up into Lebanon, up above there. Uh, Mount Hermon has an elevation of 9,232 feet, and it's pretty close to Caesarea Philippi. They could certainly have gotten there very easily in the six days that we're talking about. But there's a problem with Mount Hermon. Mark records in, in Mark chapter 9, verse 14, that following the transfiguration... He says, when they came to the other disciples, they came down off the mountain to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Hmm. Well, this was outside of Palestine proper. And the teachers of the law would have never gone into Gentile territory. So there's a difficulty there with... Uh, Mount Hermon as well. So we can't really say where this event took place. You'll go to Israel and one God will say, oh yeah, it was here. Another God will say, oh yeah, it was here. But the fact is, we just simply do not know. But what we do know is this. Jesus had gone up on that mountain to pray. And while he was praying, he was changed. Matthew 17, 2 is where we find this. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Well, what is this word transfiguration? Anyway, I mean, that's a, we don't use that in normal walking around everyday English today. Transfiguration, the definition is it's a change in form or appearance, kind of a metamorphosis, an exalting, glorifying, or spiritual change. It has a spiritual connotation, not a physical connotation so much. When Paul uses the word transfiguration in all of his writings in the New Testament, he's talking about an inner transformation of the believer into a being that resembles more like Christ, looks more like Christ, becomes more Christ-like. But here on this mountain, it seems to have more to do with Jesus's outward visible appearance than it does his inner appearance. Exodus 34, 29 through 30 records uh, something similar to this. Moses' face is said to have shone so brightly that the people were unable to look at him after he came down off the mountain. And Moses had to cover his face with a veil if he was in their presence. 
Yet there's one major difference between this transfiguration of Moses and the transfiguration of Jesus. Moses' face shone because it was reflecting the glory of God, whom he had been speaking with. And by contrast, Jesus' face shone because he was transfigured, which means that it was his own glory that was being made visible to his disciples. It wasn't reflecting off of anything. It was emanating from him. And this difference also shows up in the appearance of Moses and Elijah there on that mountain with uh, Jesus. We're never told why it was Moses and Elijah, but we can assume since Moses was the great lawgiver and Elijah was the first of the great prophets, it seems that the two represent the law and the prophets, the two chief divisions in the Old Testament, suggesting that what they stood for is being fulfilled in Jesus himself. Matthew five seventeen, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, Jesus is the culmination of the entire Old Testament revelation. And he's the fulfillment of everything that these two figures taught and stood for. So it makes sense that it would be Elijah and Moses. Peter, our friend Peter, we, we, we get, dump on Peter every week, don't we? Sorry about that, Peter. Peter was ever a man of action, and he's not going to let any, any opportunity pass to, to act up a little bit or act out as it usually is. He was not one to keep silent and just marvel at this thing that he had the privilege of seeing. He thought he had to say something. That's Peter, isn't it? So he blurted out in verse 4, Lord, it's good for us to be here on this camping trip with you. Isn't this great? If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, three pup tents there on the Mount of Transfiguration. But this time, it was God himself who corrects Peter and rebukes him, not Jesus. And the next verse, verse 5 Uh, It says, while he, while Peter, was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. We've talked before about this, but Matthew wrote this gospel primarily for Jewish people. And it would be impossible for any Jewish reader or hearer to miss the importance of this word cloud. A bright cloud enveloped them. Because it would immediately suggest to the Jewish ear Shekinah glory from God and indicate that God himself was present to speak as he had spoken before with Moses and the others on Mount Sinai. Shekinah from shakan means dwelling, abiding, God with them. It's used 58 times, uh, the reference to the cloud or, or some semblance of the cloud, though that word shekinah is never really found in our scriptures. 
In Jewish writings, it's used a lot. It refers to that glory cloud that was God, the cloud that uh, uh, descended on, on the temple. The cloud was first mentioned at the Exodus from Egypt. It appeared to lead the people out of Egypt. The text says in Exodus 13, 21, 22, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Except for once, the cloud protected the people from the pursuing Egyptian um, armies. Exodus 14, 19 through 20 says this, Then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of, the, of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night... The cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. A protection. It was probably the cloud that descended on Sinai when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law from God. This is in Exodus 19, verses 16 through 20. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. When the wilderness tabernacle was completed, the cloud of glory filled it so that even Moses couldn't enter into it. Exodus 40 Verses 34 through 35, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And after this, the clouds referred to in many more times throughout the, the first five books of the Bible. The cloud appeared as the dedication of Solomon's temple in 1 Kings. And it's even possible that it was the same cloud that was involved with Jesus' ascension, if you think about it. Acts 1.9, it says, When a cloud hid him from his disciples' sight. Just an interesting rabbit trail, right? <laughs> the cloud. Back to the transfiguration. The cloud began to envelop them and they were afraid. And then a voice in the cloud began to speak to them. And in verse 5, again, it says, While Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Does that sound familiar at all? I know I just read it a little while ago, but does it sound familiar for any other reason? Matthew three seventeen that we looked at a long time ago. 
Actually, let's go back to verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, this is the baptism of Jesus, he went up out of the water. At that very moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Hmm. Does sound a little familiar, doesn't it? But it has its origins even way before the baptism of Jesus. Isaiah 42, the first three verses, says this. Here is my servant, God talking about his servant. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Remember, that's what they're looking for in Messiah, justice and peace throughout the world. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. So that voice had been around a long time. Well, what's missing in the baptism account that we find in the transfiguration account? Did you catch it? What's missing? There's one important addition, and that's our big idea for today. It's this. Listen to him. Listen to him. Why listen? Why would he say listen? Messiah's here. He's come. He is Jesus, and the duty of Peter and the others is to be quiet and listen to what Jesus has to say. Could anything be more relevant for us today? Is there any word that could be more relevant for us? In a crisis situation, we always hear people say, don't just stand there, do something. But when I think about the truth that God has revealed to us in, in His Scripture, I just want to say, don't just do something, stand there. The Alpha Course has taught me that it's more important to stand firm on the truths of Scripture than to be active in Christian work outside of the mission of the church. We do so many things as Christians that are unnecessary. Busy work. Good work, yeah, good work. But is it what's within the mission of our church to do? And each church, of course, has a different mission statement. That, that's one reason we go to different churches. We, we look at what their mission statement is, and we buy into that mission statement, and we want to be a part of it. And God says to Peter here, in essence, don't just say something. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Now, I know that we need to speak. We've talked about that many times. The Bible needs to be taught. It's what ministers of the gospel and Christ followers are called to do, for heaven's sakes. Every believer is supposed to be witnessing. But it's not activity that we need as much as we need to hear the words of Jesus. 
It's not what would Jesus do. It's what did Jesus do. Let's look at what he did. It's not so much a vision we need as it is to learn from Jesus. Do you hear Jesus? Do you hear his voice? Do you ever hear it? Do you obey him? Last week we talked about loyal obedience. Do you you obey him? Are you so caught up in the theories of, and traditions of men or otherwise worthwhile Christian activities that you miss the one thing that's really needed, that one thing that's called for? And overbearing, zealous evangelism is not what we're about here at Renovation Church. We, be, we believe very uh, sincerely that you have to have hard feet and soft hearts, hard feet to go anywhere, even to Haiti if you're called, soft hearts to do anything, to do whatever is required in obedience to Christ. Yet we have those people who bring with them the baggage of soft feet and hard hearts. Now, I didn't say that we're not evangelists here at Renovation Church because we are. We are. But we've learned that the Holy Spirit is the one who does the saving. It's not us. I can't save anybody. You can't either. There are many, many fine churches here and throughout this country, throughout the world, that reach out aggressively and pounce on anyone who might wander through their doors. And in doing so, the ones who are not yet reached are driven further and further away. Good intentions, but that's just the way it happens. And our mission statement here at Renovation Church is to be a place where you can belong before you believe. And we mean that. I don't care who it is that walks in the door. They're welcome here. They're loved here. They're accepted here. They're wanted here. They're needed here. Whether they believe or not. not my, my uh, responsibility to save them first. It's my responsibility and your responsibility, if you're a renovator, to love them first. Maybe they've never been loved before. Maybe they've never been listened to before. We think because they don't believe they're inferior. What kind of Christian is that? As the lead pastor here and speaking for Walt uh, Anderson, who is the associate pastor, let me say that we care deeply about that 78% of the folks on the Grand Strand that do not attend church. Every time I say that, that statistic, it, it, it blows me away and it breaks my heart. 
78% of the people between Charleston and Wilmington do not attend church. And we think we're doing such a great job in our churches around here, don't we? Hmm. So hear me clearly, renovators particularly. If you're, if you're a first-time guest with us or if you're, you're visiting with us for the second or third time, you can shut your ears <laughs> or you can listen. But I'm talking here specifically to our renovators. So listen up. If you're from another church background, we don't want you unless you're willing to catch the vision that God has given us to do church a little bit differently here at Renovation. We understand that the Renovation vision and style is not for everybody, and you know what? That's okay. It doesn't mean that we can't love you and you can't love us. But if we do things just like all the other churches are doing things, we're going to reach the same people that the other churches are reaching. And they ain't reaching the 78% of the people that God has called us to reach out to. And what we hear over and over and over again, we've heard from many of you that are sitting here today, is that you were raised in a church, you were confused by the church, you were hurt by the church, You're fearful and afraid of the church and the people in the church. And ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly the person that God has called us at Renovation to connect with. And let me tell you, they're much harder to make that initial contact with, that initial connection with. It is far harder. They're much more likely to be suspect of every move we make, and rightfully so. They don't trust our motives, and rightfully so. And they want to come and check us out without any strings attached at all. They see us in our little cliques, talking and laughing as they enter, and they think, they don't really want me here. I'm not important to them. They don't ever want to walk into the door, either one of these doors, and be greeted with, are you a Christian? Do you go to church? Do you know Jesus? Have you memorized the New Testament? They don't want follow-up. That one blew me away. They don't want follow-up. We do send a letter to every first-time guest that indicates that on the Connect card, but that's the only follow-up we do. They're afraid to be singled out for any reason at all. I went to a, a, a contemporary, contemporary service in a church in our area here, and a nice church. I love the people at the church. Um, the lady gets up and says, um, any first-time visitors here today? So about 10 people, I guess, raised their hand, and she grabs the microphone and says, well, what's your name and where are you from? Where do you go to church? How do you feel? What if that's your first time in church? What if you just came to find out what this is all about? You've heard so many people talk about Jesus and you want to know what he's about. 
and that's how you're greeted, you're probably not going back. Why do they feel that way about us? Because that's the way we, they've been treated by Christians over and over and over again because we Christians as a whole are a bunch of overbearing, uncaring, non-sympathetic, zealous. Did I say overbearing? Let me show you my Christian credentials. I'm an expert Christian, fanatical busybodies who just want to add numbers to their roles and who just want to add notches to their pistol grips. That's who we are. And here's the listen clearly part, renovators. Again, ladies and gentlemen, with all due respect, if you are one of, in one of those categories and you are not willing to renovate your way of thinking, your tactics that you use, then let us help you find another church. We'll be happy to do that. We want to be known as the church in Little River that cares deeply for that 78% and cares deeply about helping the 22% to renovate their thinking toward the 78%. That's who we want to be. And we want every one of you to be a part of it. When we listen to him... That's what he told us in leadership. To the last person, that's what he told us. Listen to him. Listen to him is what the voice from the cloud said to Peter and to the other disciples. But how do we do that today when Jesus is no longer on earth? How are we to listen to him? The way that we listen to him is by hearing what he's already said in the Bible. Reading the Bible... I mean, you're going to say that again? Why are you saying that every week? Reading the Bible? You may say, that's not much of a mountaintop experience. I thought you were going to talk about a mountaintop experience. I want to see the bright light. I want to be enveloped by the, by the cloud. I want to hear the rolling thunder of God's voice. I want to have a personal revelation. But Peter is the only one of those three disciples that was up on the mountain with Jesus to leave a written record about that account. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 17. Some of this we've read, some of it we haven't. Verse 16 says, But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, for He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. But do you know what Peter wrote next? In chapter 19, immediately following what I just read to you, he says in chapter 19, And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter's telling us that his experience on the mountain was important. And he bears witness to that experience. But he adds something more certain than this experience, the testimony of Scripture, to which we must pay the most deliberate attention. I mean, think about it. Peter is saying that the Bible... I mean, think about this. The Bible is more certain than even a voice from heaven. And they didn't doubt for a moment that the voice they heard was from God. Wow. 
And I don't know any other truth of the, of the Bible that's more relevant for believers today. We live in an age where the appeal is to experience as the only sure measure of anything, not realizing that our experiences can be wrong or misleading. We hear people justifying all types of unbiblical teaching and behavior by using phrases like, well, God told me this is all right, or Oh, I feel at peace with what I'm doing, so it must be from God. But here's Peter, a prominent apostle of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, a man who had a visual experience of Christ's transfiguration, a man who also heard an audible voice from God, a man who had experiences confirmed as true by the other apostles that were with him on that occasion. And yet Peter says, in speaking of God's revelation in the Bible, says it's more certain even than his exceptional experience. Wow. Peter writes to remind us that we must evaluate our experience by God's Word and not the other way around. One of the key phrases that we learn in Alpha is... Faith is based on facts, not on feelings. If my faith were based on my feelings, there'd be days that I'd have no faith at all. There'd be days that it would be dependent on the pizza that I had in the night before. Faith is based on facts, not on feelings. Be encouraged. Your duty is to read and to mark and to learn and to digest the words of God that have already been given to us. And if you do so faithfully, if you do that faithfully, that's why I keep saying to you we need to have a Bible reading plan of some sort, you will discover how to live a life marked by self-denial and cross-bearing and loyal obedience. And you'll become a Christ follower. 